0: Hello and welcome to the Food Podcast, a show where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. Or this time around, through the lens of the sea turtle. Stick with me. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. I rewatched the 1987 film Babette's Feast earlier this winter. I was craving lavish decadence of that feast, which is only made more lavish, set against the backdrop of life on the western coast of desolate Denmark, when the days are short and you can feel the warmth of the kitchen hearth in every scene. Babette's Feast is the story of two beautiful Danish sisters growing into spinsterhood in the mid-19th century. With their strict father, a pastor and a pillar of their small community. Life shifts one day when Babette, a refugee of the Franco-Prussian war, arrives requesting shelter with the sisters in exchange for serving as the family's cook. Babette is a former Parisian chef but doesn't make that known. Instead, she works away foraging, preserving, and preparing meals for the sisters. Until one day, Babette learns that she has come into money and offers to make a celebratory meal for the sisters and their small community of church-going, yet bickering neighbors. Suddenly, the boats that arrive each week with simple provisions for the community are laden with a large sea turtle— wooden crates of live quail, beef, vegetables, cheeses, caviar, cream, and countless bottles of wine. The pious sisters are skeptical. One sister watches from the kitchen doorway, a handkerchief over her mouth, as Babette adds raw quail claws and a bouquet garni to a copper pot of stock simmering for the turtle soup. I like the way Chef Oliver Rowe describes the meal in a past issue of Vice magazine. Quote. By the end of the meal, they're all pissed and telling each other how much they love each other and all their riffs get healed. I really get choked up just thinking about it, unquote. The film left me thinking about the massive sea turtle, a dinosaur really, that was flapping away in the wooden crate in Babette's kitchen, awaiting its fate. When did sea turtles become endangered, I wondered, and how does a rare marine reptile shift from being a cherished and lavish ingredient to becoming a protected, endangered species? These were my thoughts the next morning while waiting at a stop sign just off the Number 7 highway. It was a gray Saturday morning. My son Rex's basketball team had just played a game and lost only by a little. And we were driving back to the city, As I waited for a break in traffic, I read the license plate of the car in front of me. Sea turtles. I later learned it was Rex's teammate Kieran in the backseat and his parents, Mike James, a sea turtle scientist with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and his mom, Kathleen Martin, founder of the Canadian Sea Turtle Network, sitting in the front. Needless to say, I sat next to Kathleen at the next game. I learned that the Canadian Sea Turtle Network works to conserve endangered sea turtles in Canadian waters and worldwide. I learned that they have partnered with a research team in Trinidad. Trinidad hosts one of the largest nesting colonies of leatherback sea turtles in the world, and that approximately 60% of leatherback turtles that forage in Canadian waters during the summer months originate from the Trinidad nesting population. I didn't know Kathleen very well at that point. But up until then, I thought that she was a writer.
1: This was not what I anticipated doing in my life. My graduate work is in um, modern poetry and Victorian literature. And so I did not ever anticipate working in marine science, which is, I think, you know, one of those wonderful things about life is that you land in places you don't mean to land. And I think one of the great things about writing and journalism and communication studies is that you you really need them everywhere. And that's been one of the things that's been so interesting. And I think critical to the ways in which we've been able to grow the sea turtle network, which, you know, is a, it's a small organization that's been able to do a lot is because there's a person here with a background in communications and in learning how to talk about science to people um, in, in ways that are accessible.
0: I need this accessibility for me beyond Babette's Turtle Soup. Sea turtles meant Crush, a character in Finding Nemo, who slid up and down the Gulf Stream, stoned. Or the magical creature I spotted when on holiday in the British Virgin Islands. I was on a paddleboard, and this huge disc popped up for air beside me. It was larger than the width of the board, moving on an angle. Awkward, almost. And then, as fast as it appeared, it was gone. Haven't taken a science class since grade twelve. Cooking is science, chemistry, but it has not been a field of study for me, unless you count the many episodes of Young Sheldon I've watched with my son Rex. But Kathleen is validating my path. We, all of us, have the capacity for contribution.
1: I think that um, the importance of a literary background in science is is really it's really key, and not we've got this. False dichotomy, I think, that exists between the arts and the sciences, and so this idea that you have to have a particular type of training to be good at something or to be useful to that place, and I think that that's really not the case. And I think so important. I mean, people talk about interdisciplinary, you know, as a, as a kind of a goal for things, but it's really what we're really faced with now when we're looking at um, climate, the effects of climate change, and when we're looking at you know the the issues of the huge, enormous loss of biodiversity that we're dealing with. I mean, I work with an endangered. Sea turtle population. You know, these are are really critical issues, and and we have to have everybody's brain on them. You know, and from all different perspectives is really important. So I talk to to young people a lot, a lot of like you know, aspiring marine biologists and, and people who want to do different things, and and you know, university students and high school students, and it's that incredible capacity of the world to amaze us, right? And for our life to do things we didn't anticipate, and how amazing it is that you might not know. People are always like, what are you going to do when you grow up? And, and not knowing that is, is really kind of amazing. It's so much less boring.
0: So here I am, wondering, curious, and still not knowing exactly what I'm going to do in life. And Kathleen is right. It's not boring. Because as it turns out, sea turtles, specifically the leatherbacks that Kathleen and her husband, Mike, research, have a deep connection to where I'm from here on the East Coast of Canada. Something scientists didn't know or believe until quite recently.
1: My husband, he's doing a Master's of Science degree at Acadia and was interested in studying turtles. He wanted to find out if there were sea turtles in Nova Scotia on purpose. He was following up on a hypothesis that had um, been made 30 years before by a a brilliant uh, scientist called uh, Dr. Sherman Bleakney, who worked at Acadia. He said, why don't you just do something similar Um, across Nova Scotia, just trying to see if fishermen have seen sea turtles. And so Mike took it on. So when we began the work, um, the thing that Mike did was he went to every fishing wharf in Nova Scotia and talked to the fishermen. It was started in Nova Scotia. It's expanded, obviously, but talked to to the fishermen that he met on the fishing wharfs to say, have you seen this turtle? Scientists don't believe that this turtle comes to canadian waters with any regularity like or if they're here they're lost i mean which is such a funny concept because animals don't get lost and the fishermen were like we see these animals all the time and fishermen we didn't realize they loved proving the scientists wrong. Like twenty or five years ago, they were like, "Listen, you guys, <laughs> um, this is not what's going on." But so, so we just called and we asked them. At the time, we were, gave them a toll free phone number, which we still rings to my cell phone today. If you were to call it, um, and they could call if they if they saw a turtle to give us the latitude and longitude of the of the sightings that they saw. They took pictures. Back in the day, one of our first donations was from Fuji uh, cameras, and they gave us these under, old underwater single use cameras. And we distributed them to the fishermen. They would take pictures of the leatherbacks to show that they had seen them. And so you get these underwater cameras that had like the sixth birthday party and then like a shot of a turtle and then like the camp, you know what I mean? So you get all this stuff. We develop the photos and send them back. But um, yeah, so they've been amazing. They've been the people. They were the people that put leatherback turtles on the map in Atlantic Canada. Um, They changed the global understanding of a dinosaur, these fishermen across Nova Scotia by picking up the phone and calling and being generous enough with their time to write down the Latin long to tell this grad student, you know, Um, and it's this remarkable story of kind of the generosity of people in this part of the world, right? That really, like willingness to still care for a young person coming up and saying, Hey, will you call me? You know what I mean? Like not dismissing, like wanting to complete the circle of being helpful. Um, And then that willingness to, to contribute. And then also just that, that you don't have to have a specific set of credentials to change the world.
0: So fishermen have since become their research partners, helping to tag the turtles, track them, and now are the reason they have been able to conserve sea turtles effectively off the coast of Atlantic Canada. Some might call these fishermen citizen scientists, members of the general public who collect and analyze data relating to the natural world in conjunction with professional scientists. Which leads me to the next question, one that I was embarrassed to ask. Why are sea turtles this important to us, to scientists, to the fishermen, beyond magical sightings or as a rare ingredient in a soup? Kathleen says she also asked that question way back when. She says she didn't grow up curious about the ocean like her husband had. She was usually up in a tree reading a novel. So she too once asked, why are sea turtles important anyway?
1: What do leatherback turtles even do for human beings? Like, what do they do for us? Because they're not food that we eat here. Um, they have no commercial value, so they're not they're not being sold in the market, right? Um, what's the point? So, what isn't this just kind of like a natural selection moment? You know. And he stopped and looked at me and said, "Kath, the world isn't just about us. That's why it matters." And I'd never. It was one of those moments that I'll never forget that totally shifted my view, right? When I thought, oh, I forgot. We are one of the things on the earth, not the only one that matters. And sort of making yourself part of that ecosystem and not centering yourself in it all the time Changes ever. I mean, first of all, it makes the world a much more interesting place <laughs> and a much more dynamic and beautiful place. And, and to to then realize that you have to kind of work in 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 concert with all the other things here, it's a it's a much more interesting question about how we live a life, right? And and I just had never had that idea before. And of course, you know, the idea of they've been around for 150 million years, you know, that they would disappear on our watch is a question. But also, he said, the problem is natural selection is when you die of things that are natural. He said, well, these animals aren't dying because of natural causes, they're dying because of things humans have done. Um, and so that's a really different thing. And, and for me, again, that wasn't my background, I had to learn all of those things.
0: About five years ago, my sister Sally answered a call from CBC News asking for citizen scientists to walk a stretch of beach and count the jellyfish left behind at low tide. Sally was spending her holiday at our family cottage on the Northumberland Strait, so she signed up. Every day, Sally, or our Aunt Wendy, her partner in this volunteer project, walked a kilometer's worth of beach counting stranded jellyfish and measuring the diameter of the bell of the jellyfish with a special curved ruler. Sometimes there weren't any jellyfish on the beach, but one day there were so many she had to write, too numerous to count. She bought a little robin's egg blue clipboard to help record her findings and kept a pen in her summer dress pocket. At the end of their two-week commitment, Sally and Wendy submitted their findings to the scientists behind the research. Sally says she doesn't know what became of the study. But now that I've spent time with Kathleen, I understand that the deep purple jellyfish that pulse through the Northumberland Strait feed off larva fish in the area, as do lobsters, and an overabundance of jellyfish would unsettle the delicate sea life. So the question remains, what controls the jellyfish population? The answer is sea turtles. They come all the way from in and around Trinidad.
1: That's why they're here in Nova Scotia, right? Off the coast of Atlantic Canada is for food. They come for our giant jellyfish buffet.
0: The giant jellyfish buffet. Picture it, a semicircle of pulsing spheres of purple jelly. Trailing stinging tentacles cupping the coast of Nova Scotia. These are lion's mane jellyfish, common in the North Atlantic. They can grow up to seven feet wide, with tentacles a hundred feet long, as long as a blue whale. The lion's mane has few predators, mainly because their tentacles capture and tear apart their prey, and the nematocysts along their tentacles—the parts that deliver the sting—are particularly potent. But leatherback turtles can slurp them down, no problem. It has something to do with the hook in their lip that helps to snag the giant jellies. And inside their mouths are nasty spikes that keep the jellyfish from escaping. The leatherback turtle weighs in between 800 and 1,000 pounds. They average 7 feet long and are the largest reptiles on Earth. They swim here for the jellyfish. Jellyfish make up their entire diet. And then they voyage back home all the way through the Caribbean and sometimes as far as the coast of South America.
1: So for Trinidad, where we do most of our work, the leatherback sea found off Atlantic Canada come from multiple countries. So more than a dozen different countries. So we're like the UN of sea turtles. They come up for our giant jellyfish buffet up here so which is remarkable considering how far they have to come so you know that the food they're getting up here and that's the only reason they're coming is is really worth it right so they gain so leatherbacks for example get 33 percent heavier up here so that if you weigh them on the nesting beach and then you weigh that same animal which we've done we ta- track them and tag them here they're 33 percent heavier than they are down there they're so fat they look like you took like a bike pump and just like pumped them up by the end of the season. They're hilarious. It's like, one of my favorite pictures is like this really, like this leatherback head and there's just this giant roll of fat. So wherever there isn't like skull preventing it from getting fat, it gets fat. And then they use this energy to bring them back down south. There's some that have a really strong natal homing kind of instinct and other ones, leatherbacks will kind of go to the same area generally. So they might kind of beach hop a little bit, but for the most part they're going to the same region because they don't see political boundaries. Um, and uh, and they go to where they hatched. So you'll get them coming back to the same each time after time after time, which is really, really exciting. Exciting, And so and really cool genetically, right? So then you've got a bunch of moms and sisters and aunts all on the same beach because the males never return to land only the females do. So it's this kind of like, sisterhood, like this whole kind of matriarchal thing going on there. It's really awesome. But in Nova Scotia, for example, leatherback turtles, so Mike's research has shown, um, eat a pro- approximately and likely more than their body weight in jellyfish every day. So they're pulling out 1,000 pounds of jellyfish per turtle per day up in our ecosystem. And if we look at what we see here, we see them sort of slightly under 800 to 1,000. And um, they are then vacuuming out of the ecosystem daily, you know, approximately that many pounds of jellyfish and jellyfish feed on larval fish. So if you're looking at a really healthy lobster fishery or you're looking at really healthy fisheries in general, you need to have those larval fish around, right? And so leatherbacks are helping maintain the the balance within the ecosystem here and and so it certainly have an impact on on what our our local ecosystem looks like even just you know swimming <laughs> if you want to like look at it at a very base level um in terms of the, just just the like density of jellyfish and and so it's really important And jellyfish heavy ecosystems are unhealthy ecosystems so it's an issue they're really critical that way i would not want to see what it would look like here without them. Um,
0: Admittedly, I've always connected jellyfish numbers to the freedom of swimming, especially in July. July is typically jellyfish season at our cottage on the Northumberland Strait. We are a collection of families who access the beach down a long set of wooden stairs flanked by wildflowers and eelgrass. When we reach the bottom, we stare at the ocean before we settle on a towel or unfold a beach chair. Then we ask two questions of anyone already on the beach. What's the temperature of the water, and are there any jellies? The temperature is taken every morning by Hannah, a third-generation beachgoer. She dips her thermometer into the salty water, then announces the number in Fahrenheit, not Celsius, because that's the language of ocean temperatures that we use around here. A hangover from the older imperial generation. What would they have said about a 1,000-pound sea turtles not far off the coast, weighing in at close to 454 kilos, eating up their weight in jellyfish? It's all too big to comprehend, regardless of the unit of measure. Babette's feast, with a luxurious meal beginning with turtle soup, was set on the northern tip of Denmark in the mid-19th century. In the late 20th century, The Muppet Show filmed a segment of the Swedish chef trying to make a turtle soup. The Swedish chef was originally performed by Jim Henson as the chef's voice and body, and Frank Oz providing his actual hands. That's what makes the Swedish chef so deft in the kitchen. So imagine the chef with his bushy mustache and floppy French toque, explaining cheerfully in Swedish sing-song how to make the soup in a big white enamel pot. And then he takes an onion, and whoops! It flies behind him towards the blue-and-white swedish tile kitchen walls, barely missing a copper pot hanging on the wall. All the while, a puppet turtle is staring at the camera with worried eyes. The chef bork-bork-borks at us with a cleaver in his hand, and just as he whacks it down to chop off the turtle's head... The turtle retreats inside his shell. And on it goes, the chef chasing, the turtle hiding, until the turtle turns his shell into an army tank and fires at the Swedish chef, who falls to the ground in a puff of smoke. It's silly, of course, but still a sign of the times. Turtles destined for soup are no longer acceptable. We want the turtle to win. This shift in messaging happened in the last quarter of a century, when leatherback turtle populations began to decline sharply.
1: From a sea turtle standpoint, I mean, I think it comes from just numbers, right? So, so, and then that's the issue that's at hand, or one of the issues that's at hand is if you have a a history of harvesting these animals. How do you convince people that stopping harvesting these animals is more important than not. Right. So, and how do you talk to a traditional community who, who have a his who have a tradition, right. And say, okay, at the moment, we're so pleased you've been doing this. It's done. And I think it comes down to understanding what would a sustainable harvest look like. Right. And, and I think that there's a lot of, of understanding that that is something that probably would be useful, except that at this point, there's no, there's no longer any, um, allowance for a sustainable harvest because they're just, the numbers are so poor. Um, And the crash was so, for leatherbacks, you know, so significant. The leatherbacks that we find off the coast of Nova Scotia are at the moment um, declining at a rate of almost 8% a year. So there's just no tolerance left for if I take 120 eggs out of this, out of this nest and I, and I harvest them and then sell them on the black market, um, as cures for a hangover and as aphrodisiacs, which is what they're marketed as sea turtle eggs typically, what have I done to devastate this population? Right. And so, and because the clutches of eggs are so great, like you're, you're, you can just pull out so many, right. So it does create like this, this, you can satisfy a market. So it becomes a problem that way. Kathleen has a
0: background in peace and conflict, in addition to literature. She looks at all sides of the story. Sea turtles as part of the health of our oceans. Sea turtles as an animal to be exploited. Sea turtles as a necessary food source.
1: It's always about and then how do people put food on the table, right? How do you eat? How do you get back to feeding your kids? What do you do? You know, if you do have a source of food on the nesting beach, like if you're looking at, I mean, you know, if you're looking at what do you do with a giant source of protein in a place on a nesting beach? in a place where someone's starving, right? I mean, we had a call from Venezuela, um, a researcher in Venezuela who said, you're gonna get a call because one of our sea turtles, one of the Canadian sea turtles had been washed up on the, or had come up on the beach and they had killed it for food. Well, there's a failed state in Venezuela, right? Now, like it's, people are starving. You can't, we're like, don't say, we're just eat the, like, don't, you know what I mean? Like the complications of putting humanity on top of all of these, you know, all of these issues become so, Um, Such an, an exercise in never being able to say just one answer is right. It's tricky. It's very tricky.
0: Is the answer for all of us just to eat more jellyfish? I've heard that in Japan, jellyfish are served as a bar snack. They're prepared by being rinsed and soaked in boiling water. And I assume you cut off the stingers first. I would put on garden gloves the ones I wear when picking nettles. Then you thinly slice the jellyfish into strips and toss them with soy sauce, sesame oil, Chinese rice vinegar, sugar, and sesame seeds. And they're served cold with a beer. I asked my friend Gord Cooper, a student of Japanese language and culture, to help me with the
2: pronunciation of this dish. It's a good thing you ask, because this is something that could easily be misunderstood so chuka kurage is how you pronounce it chuka chuka kurage the etymology is chuka uh, refers to chinese style or chinese origin and kurage uh, is the word for jellyfish um it's easily confused with a few other things so for instance you've had chicken karage, karaage which is deep fried chicken that's different karaage is uh, is deep fried stuff, whereas the word you've got here is kudage, kudage, which is the word for jellyfish. So there you go, chuka karage. Sorry, no, chuka. This is why it's so easy to screw up. Chuka kudage, kudage, not karage but kudage. Chuka kudage. Chuka karage.
0: My dad once dried jellyfish in the sun at our cottage and sliced them up and used the little purple strips as an ingredient in fish cakes. You lose the textural quality this way, but they were interesting. The challenge for me is how to rebrand the jellyfish in my head as a delicacy, not a menacing, pulsing, stinging irritant. And I've read that the Irish call jellyfish snot of the seals rebranding might take time. For me. But regardless, the sea turtles love them. Kathleen writes a Substack newsletter called Sea Turtle Scoop. In May 2022, She posted about a sea turtle they had first worked with off Cape Breton in August of 2013. She was seen nesting in Trinidad in 2018 and then again in 2020. That's when the satellite team tagged her and named her Grace. Kathleen posted a snapshot of Grace's satellite track, a thin green line cutting through the blue ocean from what looks like Trinidad up to Nova Scotia and back. It's a meandering journey, In the perfect shape of a heart. Thank you to Kathleen Martin of the Canadian Sea Turtle Network, best person ever to sit next to at a basketball game. So I ask who is sitting next to you? Find out, pull the thread, who knows where it will take you? And thank you to Gord Cooper my resident expert in all things Japanese. Links to all that we've mentioned will be in the show notes. This series is edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme song is Jen Grant's One More Night. Please rate and review the food podcast wherever you get your podcasts and consider signing up for my newsletter. It's called Food Stories and the link is in the show notes or you can head to lindsaycameronwilson.substack.com Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsey Cameron Wilson.